You're listening to the Grace Covenant Statesville audio podcast. Shortly after finishing uh, grad school, we were in Southern California living in Pasadena at the time. Um, We found ourselves living in the rural countryside of Minnesota. And... uh, Having we'd finished, uh, I'd finished grad school, and we just weren't finding that next job, that next ministry position, and um, we had to leave student housing, and so we found ourselves in kind of a rough place. And my uncle has a hobby farm about an hour north of the Twin Cities, and on this property, it's got about 13, 14 acres, and on the property, uh, my uh, my grandmother had a mobile home, so he had it set up there, and it's really nice, really nice setup, and she stayed with them on the property, and they offered, my grandmother said, hey, come take my place, I'll move in with my son, your uncle, you know, while you figure out what you're, what's going to be happening next, and so that's what we did. And uh, at the time, Samuel was four, Sarah was one, and Betsy was five months pregnant with Peter. And so we packed up the U-Haul and moved. Uh, uh, <laughs> Betsy refers to it as the frozen barren wasteland of rural Minnesota. <laughs> now, let's again, we're coming from Southern California. We moved in September. One month after we arrived, um, we got a 36-inch snowstorm. We didn't see the ground again till end of May, um, and so that was that was quite the shock, to say the least. From time to time, um, you know, I had temp jobs, and we were there for over a year, and uh, it was one of the most difficult seasons of my life. And you know, I felt, you know, I, I had this since high school. I felt this definitive call to ministry, that was very strong and powerful. I knew what I wanted to do, and you know, as when you're young, you envisions, you know, being Billy Graham and Oral Roberts and all these guys combined, you know, kind of thing. So, well, I was my aspiration was a little more realistic, but I had just this sense of calling, and I wanted to be in ministry. And I'd served under some very significant, influential leaders within our denomination. So I had connections. Uh, I had references that were, were great. I, that, by now I had a master's degree. I had specialized experience and training. I was ready to go. And instead of being used by God for significant things, I found myself being the unemployed father of three living in my grandmother's mobile home out in the country of Minnesota. God was nowhere to be found. <coughs> Just silence. Silence. <coughs> And here's the thing, my fear was that even if he wanted to find me, I didn't know that he could, given how far out we were in the country. (laughs) Literally, that snowfall, three days for the plows to get to us. Uh, So we were stranded in our place for three days before the roads were even cleared uh, for us to get out. So you ever feel like that? You ever find yourself in a situation or circumstance where nothing is like what you had imagined? Nothing is what you'd imagine. Or you find yourself in a difficult situation through no fault of your own. You're dealing with issues and things that you shouldn't have to deal with. You find yourself in a season of life where God seemed to have disappeared altogether. Life's like that sometimes, isn't it? Life's not only painful, sometimes it's unfair. At times it seems as if everyone is against us and we have no solution for the crisis at hand. For the past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Esther and studying the situation that she was encountering. And I have to believe that there were many times 
when Esther felt the very same thing that I just described. If you recall, in week one, we realized that the setting for the book of Esther is in Persia, uh, which is today modern-day Iran. King Xerxes had overthrown, uh, or actually, actually prior to Xerxes, but um, one of the Persian kings had overthrown Israel and carried off all the elite and all the people. And now we have subsequent generations of Jewish people who have been born in in Persia. They no longer identified themselves as Israelites. And the, this uh, Persia, the territory ran from Egypt on one side to India on the other. I mean, it was an expansive territory, 127 provinces that Xerxes controlled. Xerxes, the king um, at the time of Esther. Um, we find that also in this book. There's really four main characters, Xerxes, the king, Mordecai, the, the religious, genuine Jewish man of, of, of respect and virtue. Esther was his cousin who he raised as, uh, her, who was, actually we just saw in the video, her parents died. We don't know how, but she was essentially orphaned. Her cousin Mordecai raised her. And then we have the evil villain Haman uh, in the story. So we have those four. And during week one, we explored how we're to think about life in a fallen world fall far from God. How does that work? And how are we supposed to think about ourselves? Then last week, we discovered that Haman and Mordecai don't like each other. Um, the text doesn't tell us. There's some clues. We think it has more like a tribal racial type of issue. Um, Haman, his name, they identify him as being part of the Amalekite group, which were um, bitter enemies with the Israelites. And so for generations, they've been at war, literally at war with each other. And so we think that's part of the conflict between them two. And Haman devises this plan, not just to get Mordecai, but to wipe out every Jewish person in all 127 provinces of Persia. A very, very uh, epic kind of a plan. Mordecai convinces Esther that she needs to do something if they're to live. And at the risk of her own life, you know, she needed to go to the king and plead her case to see if he wouldn't somehow change his mind. In response, Esther said, we just need to pray and fast for three days. And then I'll go and we'll see what happens. And then we, we discussed then afterward in, within that context that, that you have to care enough to get involved. You have to be motivated to act on behalf of others, and you have to have courage when those situations arrive. And that brings us to today. And I actually gave you a little foreshadowing of things last week of what we're going to be looking at. But if you have your Bibles, I want to turn to Esther chapter 5. Uh, we'll be reading uh, from verse 1. If you don't, um, we can read it here on the screen. <clears throat> on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given to you. 
And what is your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet that I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So put the pause, push the pause button there. So, that, so now she's made her request. All right, come again to another dinner. The rest of the chapter, and then all of chapter 6, is this fascinating story. It actually, it, it's irony, it's one of these, it's, it's, it's really um, almost comical in how it works. I'm not going to mention a word about it. You're going to have to go home and have homework this week if you want to read what happens in chapter 6. I'm telling you that because there's a gap between what I just read and where we're going to pick up. Um, that gap, what it covers, actually... He ties into the end of the story, um, but we're picking up here. Now we're going to pick up in chapter 7, which we're now at that second dinner. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet, because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. And thank you, Father, for... Um, just the chance we have to explore it a little deeper. Father, give us insight and discernment as to what, uh, what is there, how that we might apply it and learn from it in our own daily lives, we pray. Uh, Holy Spirit, we ask for you to speak to our hearts and minds, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the following verses, we read where King Xerxes hears this, and he's so angry, he goes into this rage. In fact, he's so angry, he literally has to leave the room. So he leaves. Haman realizes he's toast. This is, he realizes the king's already made up his mind, and, I'm, and so he starts to beg Esther for mercy. So here's the man who's been plotting this. The, he's, he's been plotting to kill Mordecai and Esther, and all. These, and all he literally had set a date and got the king to agree to a decree, an edict, that one day, eleven months from then, all the Jews in the whole 127 provinces were to be killed. So this is the guy. This was not just somebody who had political aspirations and was, you know just stepping on people as he went, he literally is trying to annihilate the whole entire Jewish race within Persia. He's now begging Esther for mercy. And he, he literally went to throw himself at her feet, you know, just to, to beg for mercy, when he trips and he lands on the couch in which she's sitting. That very moment, Xerxes walks back in to the room and says, what? It's not enough that you do this. You're now having this, you know, this uh, forward advance on my wife, uh, this inappropriate behavior. And 
literally at that moment said, you're, you're done. And then they, at, at that moment, they took um, Haman out and hung him. And uh, that's the end of Haman. It's, so it's a fascinating turn of events, how that plays out. Whenever we read the Bible, our intent should always be twofold. One is that we should always read it to understand what it is that they're trying to say. What's the point? And there's a lot that we have today that helps us understand what was be, what's being intended, the meaning, some of the cultural things that influence what's being said. The second part is, all right, how do we make application to us today? We believe that the Bible isn't just this cool book with stories and poetry and proverbs and wisdom and things that were written a couple thousand years ago. We believe that the Bible is, is an active word for us today, that the things that God was saying then, he's, he's saying to us today as well. So part of our intent then as we read the Bible is, what is it saying to us today? What is happening? And like I said, we do have a lot of study resources available to us that help us understand properly. There's not a lot of mystery in Esther. Some of the things are cultural. We don't understand some of the things. Um, you know, we don't have kings and queens. And so that whole thing is just a little bit of a disconnect for us. But we, we have enough about history that we can, we can understand it. How are making applications a little more challenging to us? And as I mentioned, uh, I don't know if it was last week or the week before, <clears throat> most of us will never have to make a decision that could cost us our life. And I hope none of us ever have to make a decision or take action that an entire race of people is dependent upon us. I mean, so the scope of things is quite extensive here, and I would suspect few, if any of us, will ever encounter those types of things. And so... Yet as we read Esther, I think there's a few overarching ideas that I think do speak to us and do help us today. One of them is that when we're preparing for an unprecedented event, wait on the Lord before getting involved. So even though the circumstances for Esther are different, I do think that it's important that when we're preparing for something that is really big, that we need to wait. Now, this might actually seem like a contradiction to what I said last week, because last week I said, don't wait. It says you need to get going to do something. And, but what I meant last week was I was speaking to this human inclination to procrastinate, to put it off, as, oh, someday I'll get to it. And for that, I'm saying, stop waiting, get busy. When I say you need to wait, Today, I'm saying, don't make a rash decision. Yes, you need to take action, but you need to make sure it's the right decision. You need to make sure that what you're doing isn't just done on impulse and an emotion, but that there's some rationality to it. So if you're on the verge of making a big decision, wait. In fact, I would say that the bigger the decision, the longer you need to wait. Um, there's been a couple times where I've been making a purchase and the salesman has said, if you, you need to make a decision now because this offer won't be on the table later. I have never accepted that offer. I've always walked away at that moment in time because they're trying to make me, they're trying to force me to make a decision. And that's just, that never works out well. Um, and so the bigger the decision, the longer you need to wait. 
Um, you know, many of you know we're in the process of, of buying a home. So we just had the inspections this week. We submitted our, our response, you know, to the seller based on due diligence. Here's the things we'd like addressed. We're now waiting for them to respond. Um, so this has been a process that's taking weeks as we walk through this. And we'll see. We'll see how this plays out. But the bigger the decision you're facing, if it's a life-altering decision, whether it's the direction of your life, your plans and purposes, you need to make sure that you're taking time to process it and go through it in the right way. Esther didn't rush to the king right away. When Mordecai said, you've got to do this, she didn't just set everything down and just run in. She said, let's fast and pray for three days. So how long should you wait whenever you're facing a decision? I have absolutely no idea. It might be three days. Maybe it's three weeks, three months. I don't know. But it's important that we wait on the Lord and give him time to speak to us what he wants to say, to give us guidance and direction. The other thing, the overarching idea I think that communicates to us about Esther that has application today is that when we're dealing with an unpredictable person, count on the Lord to open doors and open hearts. Amazing things happen to our courage when we wait on the Lord. It's funny, sometimes when, um, there's, again, there's something up there, maybe it's a little stressful. I found myself, as I'm just you know, thinking about it, sometimes I feel my anxiety increasing as I get closer to it. I can tell you with certainty in those moments, I'm not waiting on the Lord. Uh, it's, it's just in my own thoughts, and I'm kind of, they've kind of run away. And when we're waiting on the Lord... When we're, when, we're, when we're making this intentional dive into him to try to connect and hear from him and understand from him, what I've discovered is that that fear actually diminishes as I continue to move on. Rather than getting more fearful, I find myself actually getting less fearful. Rather than losing heart, I'm actually gaining confidence. The Lord becomes more important than our circumstance. The heart of Xerxes was open to hear Esther. The plans of Haman ended up being his own downfall. So when you're dealing with things that are uncertain, as we press into the Lord, we find that we're able to trust him and release the outcome of things to him. And as we see time and again in scripture, God does some things that we couldn't have planned and thought otherwise. Another overarching idea I think that helps us today is that when we're working through an unpleasant situation, we should trust the Lord for enduring patience. In situations that are unpleasant or difficult or challenging, timing is just as important as action. So sometimes it's just as important for us to wait as it is to act. and Sometimes it's more important for us to wait. Esther demonstrated amazing patience. Imagine that first dinner. Haman is sitting there. This is the guy who wants you dead. Not just you, your uncle. I'm sorry, your cousin. And everyone who's part of your faith, all the Jewish people in the whole, all the provinces of Persia, this is the guy who's been plotting your death. You've just heard the king say, hey, what do you want? Up to half the kingdom. And even though we know that's a figure of speech, it's still reflecting the fact that the king was very open, very receptive to whatever Esther was going to ask. And instead, she said, 
Well, she didn't say anything at that point in time. She said, really, if you were even inclined to do what I ask, come to another dinner. I, you know, I would have been pretty, at that point, I would have been pretty hard-pressed to wait any longer. I would have wanted to make my case then and there. But she didn't. Here's the thing. What happens at the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6, we discover that the king can't sleep that night. And he's restless. And so the way they dealt with insomnia back then is read for me some of the archives in our historical account. So somebody pulls a scroll and starts reading part of the history of what happened. And they read of an account that happened years earlier where this guy named Mordecai reveals this assassination attempt on Xerxes and saves Xerxes' life. And the king talking to this person, well, did we ever do anything to honor Xerxes? And I'm sorry, did we ever do anything to honor Mordecai? Did we, you know, here's this, this great thing he did for me, and did we ever do anything? Well, no, we haven't. And the, chapter 6 is this huge thing where Xerxes, un, you know, talking to Haman, Haman thinks Xerxes wanting to reward him. So he comes up with this elaborate way of a celebration, an acknowledgement. Basically, you know, take, put your robe on this person, have someone walk them through the street saying, this is what happens to, you know, the person who God loves. And because he's thinking that this is what's going to happen to me. And so he's making this elaborate celebration and, and, of, and then Xerxes says, okay, perfect. And we're going to do this for Mordecai, just as you said. In fact, I want you to be the one walking him through the streets, yelling out, this is what we, the king does to those who he wants to honor. Can you imagine that? So here's the thing. Had Esther played all her cards that first dinner, has she not shown patience? The king never would have had that insomnia issue, had that experience that night. It would, have been, it would have been all over with. But because that happened, she came to the dinner the next night. He's already predisposed to love Mordecai. And when he finds out that this guy's actually been trying to not, over, not to just kill him, but Esther and everyone else, it was more than he could handle. Her patience made that situation happen in that day. So when we're dealing with unpredictable people, count on the Lord to open doors and hearts. Don't be in a rush to try and solve it yourself. Watch and see what God might not do on your behalf. <clears throat> when standing against the last one, when standing against an unprincipled enemy, ask the Lord for invisible courage. I believe that one of the reasons why Esther waited for that second dinner was not based on fear. I don't think she was. She's afraid, like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna... to... She wasn't procrastinating. I don't think she was fearful. I believe that it was during that first dinner she discovered the king was receptive to her and would honor her request, whatever it was. Even in the presence of the evil Haman, I think that Esther grew in courage and strength. And the Lord... Ask the Lord for courage to face whatever challenge you're facing, whatever's before you. Um, I've just uh, finished uh, teaching one of the courses. I've taught uh, a few courses this past fall. Um, one of them I just finished was a course on leadership formation. How does God develop leaders? And what's that process look like? And 
Uh, one of the assignments, well, it says it's, it's an online course. I've got uh, 15, 15 students. Some of them are all over the world. It's actually pretty fun. On my computer screen, I've got all their faces, so we're all talking and engaging. Uh, it's a master's program, so all of them are, I've got a couple in their late 20s. Most are in their 30s or older. They're in the middle of ministry. And one of the assignments that I had for them was I, I wanted them to actually go back and reflect on their life and identify five experiences, events, or landmarks in their life that helped shape them as a person and led them to where they are now as a Christian leader. So I'll go back, reflect, write these out, and identify five of them. And one of my students, uh, she... She wrote this, and all I mean to say this, I'm reading these and I'm crying through most of them, realizing what some of these folk have gone through, but, but in the midst of some overwhelming pain and hurt and disappointment, in the midst of all that, finding God. And not just finding God who makes them feel better, but actually seeing that God used that in a very positive way to shape me to who I am today. So it's not just that it was a coping mechanism. They actually found it to be an empowerment mechanism, that they were better people today. One of the students, she wrote this. She's talking about, it says, Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, and me and my family lost everything. She obviously lived in New Orleans at the time. As I sat in a hotel room, I was waiting for the news channel to show what happened in my neighborhood. We all have the mindset, let me say this, um, she has five children, um, so she and her husband have five kids, and now they're, they're sitting in the a hotel room here trying to figure out what to do next. <clears throat> As I sat in the hotel room, I saw on the television the area in which I lived, everything was lost. I realized at that moment the reality of the situation, Now get this, I went into the bathroom and got on my knees and began to pray. I reminded God of his word and how he had said he would take care of me. I hope I can get through this without crying. But anyway, I reminded him that I was a, I'm a tither of both my time and money. So I thought that was pretty cool. She reminded God as if he needed to be reminded. <laughs> I, she said, I told God, I expect your word to be true. She said, in my mind, God told me to get up. And in my spirit, he began to guide and direct me. For over a year or so, God took care of us. Complete strangers would tell me that God told them to give this to me as they handed me money. Letters would come in the mail that explained that I did not know them, but God had told them to send me money and things that we needed. A few months into this, I was talking to my aunt who lived in Florida. I told her how I miss simple things like matching towels and a particular brand of candy. I told her about this book, The Secret Garden, and how it was my favorite book as a teenager. The next day, I received a box from California. As I opened the box, I found a card. The box was from a single dad with two little girls, and they heard about us and wanted to bless us. As we opened the box, there were matching towels and the candies that I spoke about the day before. And there was even a copy of The Secret Garden in the box. Then she says this, This season showed me that in the midst of all that was lost, 
God was still actively involved in my life. And not only had he remembered me, but he showed himself to be kind and he loved me. The season of struggle showed me that God was in control and cared even about the smallest things such as a book that brought me joy. Because of this season of struggle, I realized that he truly is a miracle-making God. It built my faith in a way that when things are at their lowest, I can say he was still truly in control. Nowhere in the Bible are we promised an easy life. Nowhere does it say you won't have pain, you won't have suffering, or that you won't have heartache. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus said, you will have problems and struggles. What God promises us is to never leave us. What God promises us is that he won't forsake us. What God promises us is that in the middle of that season of life, we will find him and he will provide and care for us. God delivered Mordecai, Esther and the Jews from the evil Haman. God did find me in a snowbank in rural Minnesota. God provided in ways unimaginable for one of my students. So how will God provide for you in the midst of your challenge? I have no idea. But I can pretty much tell you it probably won't be in ways that you're expecting. It'll probably be in ways that you aren't thinking about. But if you look, you will find him. During the men's breakfast yesterday, we were talking and sharing, and some were talking about God's faithfulness in their life to the point that they felt guilty for the blessings that they had received. Now, here's the thing. No one in the group is living a life of leisure and luxury. Every one of them were facing struggles and were, in, were dealing with things in their life that were significant challenges. And yet, in spite of the adversity, they were overwhelmed with the sense of God's grace and mercy in their life. God wants to do that for you too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Esther, her courage, her patience, her willingness to act in the face of adversity. Father, may we have <clears throat> that same response in the, in the situations that we face this day. Father, for those who are struggling in the season of life that is particularly hard, may they find you, Lord, in ways that they've never found you. Lord, give them tangible markers of your love and mercy for them. Very specific things that they can't deny, that can't be reasoned away or rationalized as anything but you actively involved in their life. So, Father, I pray that you would be that to us this day. We thank you again, Father, for all that you do. Lord, that we serve a God who loves us and cares for us and has not abandoned us. And that even when we don't see you, even when we may not know what you're doing, we can be confident that you, in fact, are working on our behalf. So, Lord, help us to trust. Help us to be patient. Help us, Father, to have courage to do the things that we know we need to do. Fathers, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.